I invite you at this time to turn in your pew Bibles to page 1681 where we find our scripture reading for this morning. John chapter 18 verses 1 through 14. We continue our Easter sermon series, Easter through the eyes of Peter, where we're examining the events of Holy Week, the events leading up to Christ's crucifixion particularly through the eyes of the Apostle Peter and his experience, as much as it is recorded for us in Holy Scripture. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. You know, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officers, officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell into the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials, arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. As far as the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. If you um, read the Gospels, you'll find that there are a lot of reasons that people are seeking Jesus, are looking for him, seeking to find him. The same could be true of today. It could be said of today. There's lots of reasons why people may be seeking Jesus. John's Gospel in particular gives us a variety of examples One of them I find quite interesting is those who are seeking Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000. And he says, you are coming to find me because you want free lunch. Not because you want what I have to offer, the bread of heaven. 
But today, since it's Palm Sunday, we might say that some of those who were seeking Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem and he was riding on a donkey and people cried out, Hosanna. They were crying out for a Jesus who could save them, not from their own sin, but from the oppression of the Romans, a political ruler, someone who could lift the tyranny that they are experiencing from them. They were looking for a king, the way they understood a king should be. What about those who are seeking Jesus in this moment? You could say that those who were there on Palm Sunday, they were seeking Jesus for what Jesus could do for them. What Jesus could provide for them, right? But those seeking Jesus on this night, coming in the cover of darkness, they are seeking Jesus. Because of what he stands for. Because of the risk that his presence they deem to be. Because Jesus might unsettle the status quo, the things, the way they are in this moment. Jesus may, in fact, be someone who takes away their power, their influence. And that's what we find tonight this encounter of those who are seeking Jesus for their own reasons and their own means. But in the midst of this, we get a a sense of who Jesus is. We get a sense of who Jesus is. Our theme this morning, as we consider Christ in this moment, we consider that Jesus is a Savior who protects and provides. Jesus is a Savior who protects and provides. We have three points this morning. The first is the setting. The first three verses, we get a sense of where we're at in this moment, in this narrative, and what that means. The second point we have this morning is the Savior. We get a picture of the Savior, who He is, and what He stands for, and what exactly He's doing in this moment, verses 4 through 9, and the last point is the sword, verses 10 through 14, where we have that moment in the gospel of John where we're told that the man, the disciple who had drawn his sword in this moment of Jesus' arrest is not some unnamed disciple, it's actually Peter. And what that means, what that might be teaching us. So Jesus is a Savior who protects and provides. Let's look at this first point, the setting, verses 1 through 3. We hear at the beginning of chapter 18 that when he had finished praying, when Jesus had finished praying, um, we are told that at one point in Jesus' ministry, his disciples came up to him and they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But that's a model prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples. What John does for us in his gospel is he actually gives us a recording 
of Jesus' prayer, a priestly prayer, a prayer that goes on for many chapters in the Gospel of John, a prayer of which could be summarized as saying Jesus is praying for future believers and for those who are his in that moment, and he is praying that they would be safe, that they would be provided for, that they would be protected, that they would be um, remaining firm in their salvation, but also that they would be unified, they would be um, one, they would be together, joined together. And we see right here at the end of this prayer, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know you that, that, that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. And then he closes that high priestly prayer out. And what we read here is, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with the disciples. He left the upper room and leaving that upper room as he was doing this teaching with his disciples, as he was experiencing this prayer, it begins a clock, a countdown. That initiates going towards that fateful moment of the cross. And we're told that he left, the disciples left, and they crossed the Kidron Valley. And the Kidron Valley, if you saw a map of Jerusalem, if you saw a map of the area, would have been a valley outside of the city of Jerusalem. They would have left the city of Jerusalem, where they had the upper, uh, upper room, right? And Jesus would have gone down. He would have descended into the valley. And in fact, at this time of the Passover, there would have been thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs which were slaughtered. And this blood would have been mixed with water and would have been used for the washing of the temple uh, elements, the temple altars. And all that blood and all that water, where does it wash? It washes down into the Kidron Valley. And so as Jesus is taking his disciples from the upper room, and he begins his descension down into the Kidron Valley. He, he might very well have seen that bloody scene and been reminded that he is going. He is now entering in to the moment, to the last days of his life. He is about to be slain as the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And John here, he does something interesting. He, in that upper room exchanged in his gospel, doesn't include the Lord's Supper, doesn't name that this is the Garden of Gethsemane that he goes into, this olive grove. And he doesn't even mention the agonizing prayer Christ has here in that garden, in that place, as his disciples sleep. He is sweating drops of blood. And he is calling out to his father, Father, if there's any way that this can be done in any other way, let it be. But Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And he submits himself to the will of the father. Now John, he, he skips all that. He goes straight to the arrest. And what we find here about this olive grove is that Jesus often went to this garden to pray with his disciples. And so Jesus knew that Judas knew about it. Jesus knew that Judas knew that this was a familiar place. Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And so Judas comes to the grove. 
And we're told, got in a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. This is a detachment of Roman troops and officers, temple guards. These are strange bedfellows, but in this moment they are coming together because they see Jesus as a threat also. They are coming together. They are, 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 are creating this treaty because they want to see that Jesus' influence is hushed. Jesus' influence is stopped. They don't want an uprising. They don't want anything like that. So here in this moment, you have to understand that as Jesus is praying with his disciples in the midst of this garden in the darkness, right? There, here comes a detachment of troops. There are hundreds of people coming to arrest Jesus with his 11 disciples. And they have pitchforks and lanterns and weapons. This is an angry mob. And the Romans often would, would increase their numbers to seek to intimidate those who they were coming to attack. But in this moment, when Judas brings all these troops on all these temple guards, he misunderstood the nature of Jesus. Because he thought that Jesus would fight back instead of surrendering to his father's will. And Judas, in this moment, as he comes with all these people to attack Jesus, he misunderstood the power of Jesus. Because I need you to think of something. If Jesus had chosen to fight back, how many soldiers would be enough? How many detachments of troops would he need? In order to overcome the commander of angel armies. But here in this moment, in this setting, I also want you to think of something. That may not be right on the surface, but is very much intended by John. Very much intended by the order of these events, by the providential character of God setting forth the story of redemption. We have a sinless man in an appointed garden who is about to do battle with Satan's representative. Does that sound familiar to you? A sinless man in an appointed garden about to do battle with Satan's representative. And what we should be doing as we read this story that's replaying here in the Gospel of John, is ask this question. Is this going to play out like the last time did? Or is something different going to happen? Is there going to be a plot twist? Is this going to be the same old history repeating itself? Or is this going to be the beginning of a new creation? Let's look at the second point, the Savior. Jesus is the Savior who protects and provides. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him. 
You understand that as Jesus said, Judas, go do your thing. As Jesus took his disciples down through the Kidron Valley into the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knew this was the place which Judas would bring these troops to, which Judas would bring these guards to. Jesus, Jesus knew this was his moment of arrest. This was his moment of capture. And it begins to communicate to us that something that's going on here that we need to get into our minds, something that we need to capture is that Jesus is not a victim in this situation. Jesus is not a victim at the hands of an oppressive nation. Jesus is not a victim at the hands of a Jewish nation that which has betrayed him. Jesus is purposely taking each step in his duty to accomplish the will of God, his Father. He is not surprised. He's ready. And what does he do? Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out. Judas thought that they'd have to have a search party going through the garden, finding this this cowardly Nazarite who's hiding away from them, Jesus goes out and he says, what's going on here? They expected to find a Galilean peasant hiding behind the trees. They expected a large search party believing this man would not come easily. But Jesus takes the lead. He initiates this encounter. He steps forward. He presents himself and he asks, who is it you want? There's two reasons why Jesus does this. He wanted any potential violence at the garden to be directed toward him and not his disciples. Remember, Jesus is a Savior who protects. Look at the connections again to the garden. Who are the disciples in this retelling of the redemptive story? Yes, they are Jesus' followers, but because they belong to Christ... They are part of his church, and another name for the church is the bride. One of the roles of Adam in the garden, the thing that he was instructed to do, was to protect and guard the garden. And we understand that if he were to protect, were to have protected and guarded the garden, that no sneaky serpent would have came in. But we see here in this moment... Christ protecting, guarding his bride. The serpent's minions cannot get to her. And the second reason is he wanted Judas, the soldiers and officers, to announce their evil intentions out loud. He wanted them to confess what it was that they were there to do. And Jesus says this to them. Who is it you want? And their answer, their reply is, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. You understand the reason why they say Jesus of Nazareth. Particularly the temple guards is because they want to distance themselves from who Jesus is. They have no association with him. Nazareth was a place which was despised. And in fact, today in the Arab world, Christians are often called Nazarani, and it's not meant as a compliment. Often today in the Arab world, Christians and their property will be marked with the letter Nun, 
in the Arab world because this is, identifies them as Nazarites, as Christians. And this mark sets them aside for persecution or for destruction of property or even death. If you were to be walking through the Arab world and you were to see on someone's gate or on someone's fence or on someone's house or on someone's door, that Hebrew letter, nun, the person is being marked as a Christian, someone to be despised, someone to be hated, and someone to be tortured, someone to be punished, someone to be even put to death. They say this to Jesus because they seek to belittle him. They seek to minimize him. They seek to despise him. They seek to show that they think so little of him. Right? And listen to how Jesus responds. I am he. I am he. Unfortunately, it doesn't have it here, but it should have that word he in italics because it's not there in the original Greek. When Jesus stands before Judas, the traitor, and all those who are with him, and he says, I am, he's saying, ego a me, he's saying this word that's weighted. And fronted with all this meaning because John has already been describing all these I am statements in the gospel of John. He's already confronted, Jesus has already confronted the religious leaders. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they understood what that meant. They understood that he was identifying himself with God, the one who is self-existing, the Yahweh, the I am, equivalent of the Old Testament, the I am, the one who claimed himself, the I am, all the way through Isaiah chapter 40 through 48. This is who Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am. When he said this, He's saying this. They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And basically, this is how Jesus replied. It's me, God. I'm here. And when he said this, they literally were thrown back by the power of his self-declaration. Verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back. And they fell to the ground. I mean, when God shows up, people fall to the ground. People go to their knees. When God shows up, people turn their faces. They cannot stand the glory. Jesus says, I am. And all those who came to seek his arrest fall to the ground. In that moment, Jesus displays that he is the one truly in control. He's not a victim. He gives himself up of his own cord. No one makes him do it. In that moment, Judas and the soldiers see a true display of his power and glory, and they know that if Jesus were to resist, they would not be able to stand against the angel armies at his back. You see this humility and glory commingled in one person, Jesus knocks everyone on their rear ends as he is submitting himself to their arrest. 
He says, listen, I want you to understand the power that I have. So that you can know how humble I am being to give you my hands and let you bind them. Why did Jesus display his power in this way? Well, first, Jesus will say, it is for me you are looking for, let these others go. And so in order for those words to have weight, in order for those words to have meaning, these hundreds of soldiers who are coming to arrest Jesus, who could have easily handled arresting the other disciples, right? Jesus shows them this display of power. Jesus is a savior who protects he did it in order that his request for the release of his friends, his disciples, would be taken seriously. He did it in order to protect those who were his. Again, they asked him, who is it you want? See, Jesus is the one engaging this. Jesus is the one telling them. And I can imagine that when they said Jesus of Nazareth, the next time Jesus spoke up, they were like, he said, I told you I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. And in verse 9, John says, This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Footnote here in your pew Bible says this is speaking of John 6.39. Also in Jesus' high priestly prayer, uh, Jesus speaks of the fact that he has not lost any of those that God his Father had given to him. But my question is, does, uh, does this mean that what Jesus was saying back in John 6, 39, only has reference to his disciples? Um, there are some who are uh, against this uh, sovereignty in God's salvation, who would say, see, when Jesus said, I lose none of those who have uh, been given to me, when Jesus says, um, I will not lose one of those that you've given to me, he's always talking about his disciples. He's not talking about all believers down through time, right? J- John six thirty nine says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise him up at the last day. So, so they say, look, this is what John is saying. John is saying that Jesus is only talking about his disciples in reference to his disciples. That's not true at all. What Jesus means to communicate is that Jesus' display of caring for his disciples in this moment, seeking their protection and putting their own life before his own, is who Jesus is. And if he is willing to do it for his disciples in this moment prior to his arrest, then we should be confident that he is willing to do it for us. If he do not lose his disciples, then we can be confident he will not lose us. All believers. Jesus does not lose any of those who are given to him. He is a Savior who protects. But he's also a Savior who provides. Let's look at this second, or this third point, the sword. Then Simon Peter. I think any time you read the words, then Simon Peter, in the Bible, you probably should just take a note. Something interesting is about to happen. Something interesting is about to occur. Campbell Morgan once said, Simon drew his sword and struck a blow for Jesus. 
And then he quoted, I like Simon. He had something in him. I know it was wrong. It was honest zeal. It was zeal without knowledge. Oftentimes when I think about people down through uh, church history, I think about Martin Luther. And one of the things Martin Luther often said was, sin boldly. And what he meant by that is, oftentimes living for God means you have to be courageous. You have to be willing to do something. You have to be willing to move forward. And sometimes that means that when you do something for God, when you move forward with God, for, for God, you do something sinful. I think Simon Peter's a lot like that. Remember, we have to think back to our passage from last week, Luke chapter 22. Prior to this moment, as Jesus took his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, where they fell asleep and where he was arrested, Jesus said to Simon, 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 Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Simon replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter has confidence in this moment. He believes that no matter what happens to Jesus, no matter what may occur in Jesus' life, Peter is there for it. And of course, in that moment, Jesus tells Peter, you're going to betray me. You're going to deny that you know me three times before the rooster crows tonight. But some people might ask also, why is it that Peter is holding a sword? Besides the fact that many people carried swords with them for protection in this time, if you look at the rest of that passage that we examined last week in Luke chapter 22, you'll see this. Jesus said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords, and that is enough, he replied. What is Jesus saying in that moment? He's saying, now is the time. We have to be ready. I have to be ready because now is the time when I'm going to be carried away to my death. Jesus is not saying, I need you to grab swords because I need you to be prepared and ready for violence. Jesus is saying, there's a preparedness of heart and mind that I have to enter into now that I am trying to teach you about by showing you what it means to be outwardly prepared. When you go out the door, you get all the things that you need, right? For that day. And Jesus is saying, I'm about to go out the door to the cross. And I must be mentally, spiritually prepared for this moment. Jesus knew that this moment of arrest would come. We could even say that in some sense, Jesus knew that Peter was going to have a sword in this moment. That he might teach Peter another important lesson. Peter here displays the rashness and the courage he so proudly boasted about before Christ earlier. He wants to show Christ that he is dedicated, right? This is his rabbi. This is his friend. To Peter, this is the next and rightful ruler and king of Israel. And he wants to be by his side when that happens. So what happens? Peter drew a sword and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. 
The servant's name was Malchus. Easter through the eyes of Malchus would be an interesting sermon series idea as well, although it might be a bit shorter. Can you imagine being this guy? You come out to arrest who you think must be a degenerate criminal. You get knocked on your rear as he displays his power of his divinity. Some guy leaps at you with a sword, cuts off your ear. You think your life is over, but Jesus steps in, stops him from fighting, reaches over to you, touches your ear, heals your ear, yet you still have to carry him away to a kangaroo court, watch him be beaten, mocked, spit on, and hung on a cross. Man, Malchus has been through a lot. Nonetheless, what we have here from Peter, even though he's seeking to attempt to display his courage, is pretty weak, lame, and also possibly cowardly display of devotion. You might wonder how I'm getting that. Well, first of all, Peter does not attack a Roman soldier or a temple guard. He attacks high priest's servant. Someone was most likely unarmed. Not only that, but we're told specifically that he cut off his right ear. Now, if Peter was right-handed, it might seem strange for us that Peter would go like this across his body to cut someone's right ear off who's facing him. But if this person were not facing him, it would make more sense that Peter quite possibly may have struck at Malchus from the back cutting off his right ear. Not only that, but it's one of those things where have you ever like thrown something and you're like, there's a 101 chance that this is going to hit somebody in the eye and that's the time that you hit somebody in the eye? You know what I'm talking about, right? What are the chances that you can swing a sword at somebody and only cut off their right ear? I mean, it's not a very... I think Peter needs to go to sword practice. All the Gospels tell us of this moment. But interestingly, only John tells us it was Peter. And I think that's kind of fun because if you read the Gospel of John, it's almost like there's this friendly competition going on between Peter and John. For instance, in the Gospel of John, we hear about a race to the empty tomb and uh, John makes sure to mention that the disciple whom Jesus loved beat Peter to the tomb. But Jesus, in this moment, in this moment where Peter expresses zeal without knowledge, he confronts Peter. Peter is reenacting his previous encounter with Jesus after he said, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus said to Peter, blessed be you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because nobody in earth revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Right? The next moment, Jesus says, I must go to die. And Peter says, I'll never let that happen, Lord. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking of the things of God. 
What does Jesus say to Peter? Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? You see, Jesus is not only a Savior who protects. He is a Savior who provides. Peter was unknowingly seeking to hinder Jesus from saving him. Peter, you can't save me. I need to save you. I'm the Savior, not you. Peter was unknowingly seeking to do the work of Satan by keeping Jesus from being his substitute. And Jesus is saying this. Peter, it's either me or you. Either I do this now so you can be with me in heaven or you do this later and spend eternity apart from me in hell. Put the sword away, Peter. Put the sword away. And we learn a little bit more about this provision that Jesus is providing when Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? you got to be thinking, Peter's saying, what cup, Jesus? We, we drank the wine earlier. What are you talking about? But anybody who's read the Old Testament will know that the picture of the Old Testament is that when wrath was poured out upon a nation, whether it be a foreign nation or the nation of Israel, when wrath was poured out, it was depicted as a cup being emptied. That God's wrath was being stored up in heaven, drop after drop, for every sin committed in this chalice so big, it's bigger than soldier field of, of God's wrath Drip by drip, drop by drop. And Jesus is saying, I must go drink that cup, Peter. Because in that cup is your sin. In fact, Peter, in that cup is the very sin you're committing right now. Zeal without knowledge. Inflicting violence upon someone who knows not what they're doing. And then we'll see that as Jesus is arrested, and they bound him and they brought him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Annas was the one who still sort of had that power, right, that influence. But Caiaphas was the actual priest. Uh, uh, John will mention again that Caiaphas was the one earlier in John chapter 11 who mentioned, who advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. When Caiaphas said it's better for one man to die for the people, this is the substitute that he had in mind. It's either Jesus dies or we get killed by the Romans, right? And John will tell us that unknowingly, because he was high priest that year, he prophesied. He prophesied. Unknowingly, because his idea of substitute was Jesus needs to die so that we aren't killed by the Romans. But this is God's view of substitute. Christ must die so that you won't. I must kill my son so I don't have to kill you. 
Jesus is going to provide our salvation. Jesus is going to be a substitute for us. Caiaphas said this out of political concerns, but John tells us that as the high priest, he unknowingly prophesied that the death of Christ would affect salvation for the Jewish nation and all the other nations to bring them together and make one people of God. This is what Christ is providing for Peter, for us. This was the view of Christ's death and resurrection that Peter needed, that he did not have. But the events of this week leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection will teach him. This is the view that we need. We must see Christ's work as powerful, effective, complete, perfect, and accomplished on our behalf. We must see Christ as the Savior of the world and know that the violence which was required for our salvation was done to Christ so that we no longer need to lift our swords. The blood was shed so we do not need to shed blood Salvation was purchased for us. We do not need to work for it. In fact, to work for our salvation is to work against it. So just as Jesus was saying to Peter, Peter, sheathe your sword. You're trying to do a good thing, but in fact, you are keeping the good thing from happening. Christ says to us today, sheathe your swords. Accept this protection and provision as a gift to you. The Savior who comes and who says, I will keep those who are mine. And I will present them cleansed and purified on that day. No one shall snatch them from my hand. That is our Savior. The one who says, I will go to the cross and I will accomplish and I will complete and I will provide your salvation. You do not need to do anything. It is done for you. That is our Savior. Do you know that's your Savior? Do you know that's your Savior? Or do you feel like you need to draw your sword as Peter did? Are you seeking Jesus, the right Jesus? Or do you think Jesus needs your help? May you know this morning that Jesus is a Savior who protects and provides. Jesus is a Savior who protects and provides a perfect salvation. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a Savior who provides and protects and gives us a perfect salvation. We pray, Lord, that we would rest in that salvation. We would receive it by faith as a gift of grace it is. We would sheathe our swords. And we would know that our Jesus has done everything for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Will you sing with me?